You are listening to episode 62 of Positive I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. You can find more information about my podcasts, publications, and subscribe to my newsletter on my website, pazachipotle.com, or simply click on this episode's notes and it will take you there. and ready to bring new and exciting stories for you in this fifth season of the show. I took a little time off to breathe and recharge, and in that spirit of renewal, you may have noticed that I gave the logo of the podcast a little makeover. And of course, there is a brand new intro music to match the positive vibes we also desperately need to get through 2020. I promise that you will be hearing from the new perspectives and things that I have been learning since I started my postgrad in food anthropology. So let's see what I have planned so far for the show. I am already working on a couple of episodes in which I will be joined by one of my new colleagues discussing different aspects of food tourism and other burning topics of Mexico's culinary scene. The podcast will welcome once more the fabulous Dr. Deborah Turner, who was previously with us talking about the cultural history of pulque. And this time, we'll talk about the history of beer in Mexico. The next installment of the Cultural Staples series will be on beans, followed by tomatoes. And there will be many, many more surprises to come. Now... I am aware that since March of this year, calendars and diaries have become <laughs> rather irrelevant, and the celebrations and events that used to give structure to our social life seem to have flown out of the window. But let me make the case of our ability to remember the many ways in which we create meaning out of chaotic and strange times, and try to hold on to what has brought us together in the past and think about the things we are better off leaving behind and only take with us the lessons that will continue making us stronger, happier and wiser. So today's episode is a whole new take on the upcoming celebration of the beginning of Mexico's fight to achieve independence from the Spanish colonial regime. There will be some food talk, of course, but I want to dedicate this chance to frame and give you more context to talk about the events that led to Mexico's conquest and the subsequent independence. So welcome to season five and get ready for this time traveling adventure. I hope you enjoy this episode. <music> So 
September marks the beginning of a very long season of national celebrations in Mexico, all of which reflect the complexity of our mixed heritage, history and culture. In a few days, we'll commemorate the beginning of the War of Independence on midnight, September the 15th, and a few weeks later, on the final days of October, we celebrate the life of the departed during the Day of the Dead, with many rituals, foods and traditions that are rooted in our indigenous past, but re-signified through religious Catholic expressions. November the 20th marks the remembrance of the beginning of the Mexican Revolution that was originated by the historical claim to return agricultural lands and rights to indigenous farmers who were robbed and exploited for centuries. Changing years on December the 12th, Mexico becomes the destination of Latin America's largest religious migration that sees thousands of worshippers flock to the Basilica of the Virgin of Guadalupe, who again, embodies many religious and Catholic symbolisms. But that is only the preamble of the 12 days ahead of Christmas, in which celebrations known as posadas get people ready for the imminent large gatherings that Christmas and New Year's Eve bring. And as we struggle to recover from all this, we have to remember ourselves that the holidays aren't quite over until Epiphany is celebrated. And for children, that means that the baby Jesus will bring on January the 6th a second and larger round of presents. And we mark the occasion baking and eating a huge pastry wreath known as Rosca de Reyes, which is heavily decorated with candied fruit and sugar paste that symbolizes the jeweled crowns of the three wise men. Hidden in these pastries, there's tiny figurines of the baby Jesus that will bring a blessing for the lucky ones who find it in their slice, as it comes with a debt of honor to offer a feast of tamales to the same group of people in the upcoming celebration of Candlemas, or Dia de la Candelaria, when the nativity scene and the last Christmas decorations are finally removed on February the 2nd. This marathon is not quite over yet, as smaller celebrations populate the months ahead until our year gains momentum and we start all over again. Celebrations in Mexico, you see, are complex cultural constructs through which we create a sense of togetherness and try to make sense of our history and our present. And we accommodate our needs, attitudes and practices around our ever-evolving sense of identity. These life-affirming acts, in many ways, recognize the individual and collective expressions of creativity as key components of our notion of what it means and what it feels to be Mexican. And of course, these occasions are invariably marked with communal feasts that bring together all of these elements with edible metaphors that ultimately serve as a sort of culinary reconciliation with our past. And having said that, we better get ready for the history behind the Mexican independence. On a cold and damp night on September in 1810, the sound of many hurried footsteps echoed the wet cobblestone streets of the little colonial town of Dolores, in the province of Real de Minas de Guanajuato. 
a small crowd of around 200 people, most of them criollo and mestizo, that is people of indigenous and Spanish heritage, were fully determined to risk everything to free the colony from the tight grip of the Spanish regime that had oppressed the nation for nearly 300 years. Bells were ringing as torches flashed in the middle of gunpowder smoke. Cries of war and cries of battle flooded the air. The battle had started. But wait! In order to make sense of this eventful night, we might have to go back a few more centuries to where it all began. And that is the age of discovery that went down from the late 1400s to the 1600s. And at that time, several European nations were at the brink of changing forever the history of navigation, and with that, the history of the whole world. The expansion of ancient empires had rapidly reached its limits when all known territories had already been conquered. So the next frontier was defined by the limits of their knowledge of the oceans, and finding and claiming whatever lands and fortunes were on the other side. The English, French, Portuguese, Italian, Dutch and Spanish fleets set on a race to find the fastest and more efficient routes to reach the Far East. And in that quest, experienced explorers, tradesmen, naval officers and even mercenaries joined the efforts. Mapping the worlds and oceans not only transformed their understanding of the world, but also changed the limits of what they thought it was possible. The world became bigger and ambitions to dominate it were unleashed. The whole notion of the mm, quote-unquote discovery of the Americas is really a European myth that has been perpetrated throughout history. Because we all know that migrant human diasporas came in the continent much earlier, and that means nearly 33,000 years ago. In any case, we can talk about the European encounter with this side of the world, which it turns out is also widely disputed, as we have enough archaeological evidence to know that during the Middle Ages, around the year 1000, Leif Erikson, son of the Viking king Eric the Red, navigated to America and established a settlement in today's Canada. And many centuries after, a much less fierce explorer will be the one who will go down in history as the man who accidentally discovered America. So picture yourself at the court of the Catholic kings, headed by Isabella I, Queen of Castile and Leon, Countess Consort of Barcelona, Queen Consort of Aragon, Mallorca, Sardinia, Valencia, Sicily and Naples. She was by far the most wealthy and powerful woman in Europe at the time. And next to her was her less wealthy but very scheming husband, Ferdinand II, King of Aragon, Mallorca, Sardinia and Valencia, Count of Barcelona. Their marriage brought together the largest kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula and they used their political power to bring together the many other smaller houses and set the foundation to form the Kingdom of Spain. 
This union and this period is fundamental to the history of Europe because it unified the nation from north to south and financed the war against the invading Muslim caliphates that had dominated most of the southern territory of Spain for 700 years. This war is known in Spanish as the Reconquista, the Reconquest of their land, that was also powered by a renewed radical Catholic frenzy to clean the land from infidels. Whether they were Muslim, Jewish, Anglican or any other religion, it made no difference. And we are now only in January of the very eventful year of 1492. Months after comes to the picture Cristoforo Colombo, or Christopher Columbus, a Genovese explorer, merchant and navigator. He self-educated in history, geography and astronomy, but didn't quite have that much experience leading long voyages on his own. But because he had more ambition than skills, he traveled from Lisbon, where he lived, to the court of the Catholic kings to present them with a tempting and potentially hugely lucrative plan to find a faster route to reach the East Indies, that is Asia, via a Western passage. His proposal somehow got backed up, and so he left Spain in August 3rd with three ships. And after many errors and confusion, thanks to his erroneous calculations and the fact that he had no idea that there was a whole continent between him and his goal, he stumbled with small Caribbean islands and eventually reached modern-day Cuba on October the 12th, after 71 days of navigation. After fully realizing that he had not indeed reached Asia, but instead had stumbled upon unknown lands, Columbus symbolically claimed the territory for the Spanish crown. And for lack of a better understanding of this region, he referred to it as the West Indies. Incidentally, that will give you a clue as to why Native American cultures across the continent are called Indians. He established small colonies in Cuba and Hispaniola, which is today's Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He returned to Spain the following year, bringing captive Taino indigenous people. Actually, if you're curious to know more about Columbus but can't be bothered to read about it, I recommend you watch the Ridley Scott film 1492, The Conquest of Paradise. I will leave a link on the notes of this episode for you. Now, in case you are wondering about the origin of the continent's name and why it's not called Colombia, it seems that the name America was first used in a German map in 1508. And the author argued that the Italian Florentine explorer, fellow cartographer and navigator Amerigo Vespucci had paid a much greater service to geography than Columbus. But why was that? Well... Between 1497 and 1504, Vespucci was financed by Portugal and Spain to carry on expeditions to the newly discovered lands. And not only he performed those explorations successfully, he also published his findings in two hugely popular books that had accounts of the trips with slightly embellished tales, but very accurate geographical descriptions that settled once and for all 
that the whole mass of land on the other side of the Atlantic was in fact an entirely separate continent and proved beyond doubt that this new world was no extension of Asia, as Columbus had previously suggested. Therefore, in the eyes of European cartographers, he deserved more merit than a mere accidental discovery, and what better recognition than naming the entire continent in his honor. Now, going back to our main story, next comes Hernán Cortés de Monroy y Pizarro Altamirano, who was the son of a wealthy Spanish family. His father was a high-ranking militar, but contrary to popular belief, Hernán was a quiet, sickly child who didn't show any interest in a military career. He studied Latin and trained to be a notary, but apparently most of his biographers do agree that he had a rather arrogant attitude and was prone to fits of bad temper from a young age. In the early years of the 1500s, thanks to some good old-fashioned nepotism, his family connections secured him an administrative position at Hispaniola, which, I just mentioned, was the name for today's Dominican Republic and Haiti. He spent a long time learning and understanding the Spanish politics of the region and became increasingly interested in knowing more about the mainland ahead of Hispaniola, which was none other than modern-day Mexico. Long story short, in the following years, Cortés did many trips back and forth uh, between Spain and Hispaniola, but his impatience grew and he constantly antagonized the local authorities in spite of being himself clerk to the treasurer, working closely with the governor. So he ended up organizing a rogue military mission, disobeying orders, and he recruited men in Spain to join him in a voyage to conquest and claim the continent, and with that he became a conqueror whose belligerent and arrogant attitude only matched his disdain to follow orders or keep his loyalties. After very entrenched negotiations, at the age of 36, the then clerk and mayor of Santiago de Cuba was appointed to lead the full operation of destroying the Aztec Empire. And after that, he took temporary control over the Spanish colony until a viceregal government was appointed. Cortés might not have had a military career, but he was a clever strategist and carried on the conquest with a sharp and ruthless determination. Now, the whole process of the conquest itself is quite an episode and I will not talk about it in full detail or we will be here until Easter. So again, if you want to learn more about this, I will leave a link for you to watch another very good film called The Other Conquest by Salvador Carrasco, which talks about the cultural conquest from the perspective of native indigenous people in Mexico. Right, so after the fall of the Mexica or Aztec Empire in 1521, the Spanish renamed this territory as New Spain. And with that, the most profitable and powerful Spanish colony of the Americas began what is known today as the colonial period that ended in 1821 with the triumph of the War of Independence. 
What occurred during those nearly 300 years can be the subject of two PhDs and one postdoc dissertation. But in a nutshell, the indigenous nations saw the systematic destruction of their way of life. They were persecuted, many were enslaved, suffered religious indoctrination, the imposition of a single authoritarian regime under a Spanish set of laws, language and political structure. And as a consequence of wars, genocide, famines, displacement and the inevitable introduction of European viruses that caused devastating outbreaks, the indigenous population plummeted. And it is estimated that more than 60 million indigenous people died as a result of these mixed factors. Now, unpacking a little bit more the colonial period, this regime did not entirely wipe out the First Nations, as we still have communities that represent the 68 original indigenous tribes of Mexico. But the fact that the colonial society was fiercely stratified and divided by the casta system by which Spaniards obsessively classified people by their genetic origin and distinguished 19 different castes with the purpose to not just satisfy a mere demographic curiosity, but to create an instrument of control by which people with less percentage of Spanish heritage had less privileges and were subject to the enforcement of discriminatory laws that aimed to keep the control of political, economic and religious institutions in the hands of the so-called peninsular Spaniards of pure European origin. Understandably, after nearly 300 years of forced integration, the population had changed significantly and the largest caste categories were represented by the mestizo population, that meant of direct indigenous and Spanish heritage, that grew exponentially and rapidly outnumbered the white European minority and even the criollo caste, who were the people born in the colony from Spanish parents. As you can imagine, this rigid system that prevented social mobility led to all sorts of political, ideological and social conflicts. On a separate note, I do have to mention the fact that prior to the Spanish conquest, Mesoamerican societies were also heavily stratified. Privileges, rights and power was held by a small minority of rulers, nobles, priests and army men. The rest of the population was divided by trades. At the bottom were farmers, laborers and slaves. The Aztec Empire, you see, had also imposed, like many empires before them, their language, religious beliefs and political control upon everybody else. So, in many ways, the colonial society mirrored that of the previous indigenous empires. There were many the causes and events that led to social unrest, political effervescence and the inevitable decay of the colonial regime. While classical history is very quick to point out to specific circumstances to explain our past, for the sake of making sense of this, let's agree that indeed the call to arms on that eventful midnight of September the 15th in Dolores, Guanajuato, galvanized the independentist movements across New Spain and gave them the momentum they needed to join the fight. 
Across the territory, activists, politicians, middle-class mestizo and criollo figures and a few honorable members of the liberal clergy led the spread of independence ideas, among them the left-wing liberal Jesuit priest Miguel Gregorio Antonio Francisco Ignacio Hidalgo Costilla y Gallaga Mandarte Villaseñor, often depicted as an elderly and sweet father-like figure. But really, he was only 57 years old when he organized and led a group of insurgents to raise in arms. Hidalgo had previously studied at a Jesuit college before attending the Royal and Pontifical University of Mexico. He was not only a theologist and philosopher, but also spoke fluently several indigenous languages, Latin and French. The latter was fundamental to his increased interest in reading the leading authors of the European Enlightenment, whose texts were largely forbidden in the Spanish colonies. No surprise there. Hidalgo was one of the many leaders that spearheaded this movement. Among many others, we can count Vicente Guerrero, Josefa Ortiz de Domínguez, fellow priest José María Morelos, Leona Vicario, Ignacio Allende, and many, many others. Official history and a handful of accounts tell us that Miguel Hidalgo carried on that night a banner of the Virgin of Guadalupe to rally Republican troops and sympathizers shouting something along the lines of Viva the Virgin of Guadalupe, death to the bad government, death to the Gachupines, that is Spaniards, and Viva America. Now, we'll never know for sure what went down that night, but we do know that Hidalgo and his followers were attacked by the royalists. Many died on the spot, others were taken prisoners, tortured to extract confessions that would implicate other sympathizers. Hidalgo managed to escape, but was captured the following year in the northern state of Chihuahua. After being trialed twice by the church and by the state, he was sentenced to death by shooting, only to be beheaded afterwards, and his head was sent back to Guanajuato, where it was exhibited on a spike at the public square known as the Alondiga de Granaditas. Ugh, that was some heavy stuff. But the aftermath was also long and complicated. So the Republican troops and supporting civilians fought tirelessly for 11 long years, until the oh-so-elusive independence was finally achieved in 1821. Now, a key part of our nationalist myths is the idealized scene of the triumphant entry of the Republican army led by General Agustin Cosme Damián de Iturbide Yaramburu into the regal city of Puebla, where the nuns of the affluent convent of Santa Monica prepared a special patriotic dish to mark the occasion. And inspired by the colors of the nation's new flag, green, white and red, They glamped up a traditional local recipe of poblano chiles stuffed with a rich and very expensive means, coated in egg butter and fried. But in this occasion, instead of using an ordinary sauce, they served them with a white walnut sauce called nogada and sprinkled fresh pomegranate seeds and freshly picked leaves of parsley. 
To this day, the commemoration of the beginning of the fight of independence is a very popular celebration. School festivals and public formal events are, of course, mandatory. But also friends and families get together for lucky pot reunions, enjoying traditional regional dishes like pozole, mole, tacos, chanclas, carnitas, tostadas, misiotes, barbacoa, of course, in Puebla, chiles en hogada, and many other dishes that are all washed down with copious shots of, well, depending the case, tequila, wine, sherry, rum, charanda, aguardiente, beer, pulque, and any other drink of their choice. On a final note, let's reflect on the fact that the very complex legacy of the Spanish colonization had many implications that still to this day we continue to process. The importance of remembrance and celebration of independence has not surprisingly been heavily politicized over the centuries, but nothing stops us from reclaiming and redefining what it means for us to be free to be independent, to remember the history that shaped this present and decide to be free to make choices for ourselves, free our minds of cultural stereotypes and class divisions and actively contribute to become a better, more inclusive and open society. <laughs> I know, I know, I do get carried away, but really that is the way I personally see this opportunity to continue evolving. So, <laughs> viva México, viva our traditions, and of course, viva our delicious food. Thank you for listening to this first and passionate episode of Season 5 that was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. And guess what? Of course, preparations for Independence Day are best enjoyed with my ebook, Mexican Fiestas. And there is no doubt that Mexico's vibrant celebrations have captivated people's imagination because of their richness, the cultural significance, and, of course, mouth-watering foods and drinks that mark every occasion in Mexico's busy, festive calendar. These and all of my ebooks are researched, written, and photographed by me. And this particular one will take you into the intimate side of Mexico's most loved celebrations, their origins, and step-by-step -step recipes to prepare many of Mexico's world-acclaimed festive dishes. To read more about my ebooks, you can go to my website, positivepotle.com, or click the link that I left for you on this episode's description. Remember, you can reach out to me on Instagram, I'm always there, Twitter, or drop me a line to my email that is hello at pasachipotle.com. I wish you all fellow Mexican food lovers 
a very happy, delicious and probably socially distanced Independence Day. And that's it for today, my friends. Until the next time.